go. Hey, what is up, guys? Welcome back to Dangerous Rhetoric. This is episode 84. Before I jump into it, I'm going to kindly remind you guys, please like, comment, and subscribe. We are almost at a 1,000 subs. It's taken like a year and a half, but we've been trudging, and it's paid off. And if you want to help us financially, then please donate, because it does help us a lot. We have some very difficult conversations, and yeah, you don't always make a lot of friends having these conversations. <laughs> Links are in the description. Um, with all of that said, today we are joined once again by the wandering cartoonist who serves no master, the based, the handsome George Alexopoulos. My friend, thanks for joining us. Oh, you again. forgot the fast handed. The fast handed. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I got it. It is my pleasure and an honor. Thank you again. No, we'd love to have you back. Yeah. Actually, now this time we actually have an audience, so yes. it's it's good for you, good of you to rejoin. Well, I was going to bring that up before we went into it. As you know, Alex joined us on episode eighteen <laughs> of the podcast, and you were one of our first guests ever. We hadn't really talked to many people on the show before you. I think you were like our fourth guest, maybe. Hmm. And I was honestly shocked you even like wanted to talk to us because we had like no audience or anyone at all. So it was a very flattering flattering thing and you've been a great supporter of the show so thanks man we appreciate it that's well, kind of you to say but to be honest um i don't think a person's i mean this is a silly uh, side effect of social media and stuff a person's value is not by like how many numbers they have that's true I, I on the opposite end of that i would say my value is overvalued because i have followers or something that doesn't make me any more special than any other guy i think good intelligent conversation like what you guys do is as valuable, maybe more valuable than say someone with a lot of followers who just talks poo poo out of his mouth all the time. It's boring. You know, well, you don't you, talk poo poo. You, you definitely you, don't you talk make poo -poo. your poo poo very cunning. Your poo poo is entertaining. It's pretty. Yeah. I forgot. I can curse on you guys' show. Right? Yeah, you yeah. Can curse here. We're not even monetized. Okay. So. Not okay. Yeah, we'll get monetized and then get demonetized. And, well, maybe one day we'll actually have like parents being like, "Yo, we'd like to listen to your show around our children." <laughs> so we get close too much. Yeah, we're not there yet. But, well, I'll, I'll use my church voice for <laughs> use your church. Voice. <laughs> all right, I'm going to throw the ball oh, to wait. Brent. Well, first of all, I want to um, plug Mr. George Alexopoulos's clothing line. Oh, yes. I'm wearing one of his originals. Yes. I like America T-shirts. So offensive. That's yeah. that's so much hate. Oh, it's so good. I wore it to Burlington. I went up there uh, last weekend to do a little uh, collaboration with the LGB Alliance Vermont and uh, the Disaffected Podcast. And the first night I was there, I was wearing it around Burlington, like out on the street. And I got so many looks like like you would it's like i was wearing like a fucking like must kill all immigrants shirt or something like i i just i like the, the red and the white letters because you know that that's what they're looking at and immediately yeah. rain is thinking of a particular hat you know and that's what triggers them but they're confused by the message you know it's, it's, it's such <laughs> and the font also is like kind of People that are listening, like it's very like chill, like yeah. almost. It's the most like wholesome thing. Yeah, I like America. You see on a T-shirt. Yeah, it was uh, just some character in the background of one of my strips had it on, and then some people said, "Oh, I'd want that as a shirt." Like, surely nobody would wear that. <laughs> no. um, but that's a lot of things on my little shop. People ask for things, and I don't understand. But yeah, I like the, uh, let's talk about the um, the kiss my ass cards. Yeah. <laughs> I oh, have them. <laughs> I have them somewhere. Oh, that was from the heart. That's true, though. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, man. I wanted. I never handed any out, but 
I should have. I never even bothered going to any places that had the, you know, the Vax passes and stuff. But I think it, that was just uh, to feel good to yeah. have them. So and, just yeah. in case. Folks that want to uh, check out George's wares can head on over to Etsy.com and search for Studio NJ, all one word. Um, and you can see here on the screen, I've got it pulled up. George has one little t-shirt that says, we bussin'. I love it. <laughs> the 90s Stussy Diamonds. Oh, my God. That S, man. I've the drawn so many of those. We probably. all have. That thing is a mystery, <laughs> man. It is a mystery. It's coming back. I don't know why. It's always going to come back. It's never going to die. Um, and then he's got a lot of his ship posts, so like the collection of little like one-offs that he does that are amazing. I've got a couple of those. And then there are uh, the Mary Sue issues, which when's ship number six going to pop up? Any idea? Mary Sue six? Um, I could elaborate later. Um, I've written like up to 30, but I have to find time to draw them. Ah, so yes. I'm, I'm debating how to present the rest of the story. Got you, got you. Um, yeah, and I think this is one of my favorites, the print that where Joe Biden steals the blackness from somebody who won't vote for him. <laughs> yeah. That's so good. Classic, classic, classic. Um, yeah, for those who want, you know, to know maybe a little bit more about George's backstory and, you know, how he got started and ended up where he is, definitely be sure to go back to episode 18 when we were still noobs. Great conversation, though. Watch that. Definitely. But, Brent, I know you wanted to jump in and talk about Mary Sue. Yeah. I only read issue one, so I don't have a lot yet to really comment on besides the art style, which I love. But uh, Brent has been like a little addicted and I think he like already banged out like how many of them? All of them. All of them? <laughs> I read them all. Okay. You they read all five, right? I all five, yeah. Okay. And uh, I like how they're sort of cliffhangers. So like, right, he, he sort of like ends off like, you know, it's a, it's a point, like each one is very self-contained and it does tell a good story. Yeah, the first was on the cruise, right? And then it ends with her like- Well, it ends with her in the mech suit. In the mech suit, yeah, yeah. Um, so, and, and the thing that was cool about that is that, that like you just want to go to the next one. Like it, it reminds me of like Netflix bingeables in that you have this way of ending the story right at the point where like it sort of summarizes what has been happening up to this point, but it also leaves like, okay, there's all this stuff that's going to keep happening in the future. And like, I'm desperate to know what it is. So bravo at, so at, at writing a really good hook in that first one. I guess it's like episodic, you would say. Like the really those really good classic shows were episodic and like every episode did have like a self-contained sort of plot, but there was that overarching plot for the whole series. And I, I think a lot of that has definitely been sort of lost in the bingeable style of writing things today. I don't know, like Netflix and that sort of thing. One of the challenges of writing a serialized story, and it's different from, say, a novel where the end is, you're holding the whole thing, and you know it ends at some point, and you know where you are in the story, like a map. Issue-by-issue uh, uh, issue comic series, you have to always put hooks at the end of a chapter to get people curious about what's going to happen next. And then even throughout the whole story, you want to put little breadcrumbs. So in the first two issues, the main character, Rosemary, uh, encounters characters who escape, let's say, into future issues. And she wants to hunt them down, but she also has her day job. Uh, so I want to examine a little bit of what she does in her profession, but then she has this personal vendetta that's sort of like um, a carrot on a stick, where she wants to advance that story, but she has other things she has to do too. So. It's like episodes in an anime where yeah. 
there is a main quest for her, but there's all these side quests as well. And the biggest problem now is figuring out how to find time to keep drawing new issues, which I want to do. But let's say if my rate is a page per day drawing and painting, and an issue is 24 pages, that's almost roughly a month of work per issue. And that's full time. So I'm also doing my political strips and stuff on the side, which is what's more popular. Mm-hmm. But but I'm more interested in writing comics like Mary Sue. So I don't I'm I'm trying to figure out how to balance my schedule. Yeah. I don't have the answer right now. I remember, you know, when we hung out a few months ago, you you went deep into this and that trying to find that balance between say providing the work that your audience really does want to see and obviously you want to you want to provide that service to them, you know, because they keep coming back for it, but your heart is definitely more in this uh, I guess deeper more creative stuff less so in the satirical work, which is what you're mostly known for. Um, I mean, there has to be some kind of way to bridge the gap, I would say. And I mean, would you say you found some supporters more from among the people who like your political stuff, say like us, who end up looking into your your more creative work and buying stuff you know, and actually supporting you? Like, do you find that there's a, a crossover? You know, I don't know what percentage of the readers it's hard to say because so many people want different things. Sometimes I joke about doing not safe for work illustrations, pinups and stuff. Yeah. A certain amount of those people would love that. I did a calendar for uh, two years ago, I think, of just pinups of like a sexy police officer lady and people like that. But then I get other comments of saying, oh, don't do that because I'll unfollow you and yeah. never read your stuff again. So I want to try to not piss everyone off. That's hard. You can't, you can't, it's so hard to do that though. And to stay true to what you do and to stay creative, you know, you're always going to piss someone off. So the trouble is a a human being is a very complex creature. And I could act like, for instance, if I'm doing a children's book, which I am, um, I don't, people could say like, oh, but he's also drawn pinups and he also draws ultraviolence and he also draws children's stuff. That's weird. But I see it as I'm just a complete human adult male and i have many different interests and it's weird i guess if you put my ultra violent stuff next to a children's book but they're not for the same audience and i want to try to do a little bit of everything because it satisfies me but that's also selfish so i have to creatively satisfy my own cravings let's say but i also have an audience to serve so I'm just, it's the tightrope walk. I'm trying to figure it out. I don't want to sacrifice the political current event strips too much because a lot of people seem to like that. And, uh, but I do want to do fiction as well. That's where my heart is, I think. Yeah. Um, So I'll just see what I have time for, I suppose. Yeah, it strikes me that like, as you were talking about um, the episodic nature of the story and how Rosemary is going through everything, that that's kind of like life and probably why the story resonates. Like I was all, thinking that too. <laughs> yeah, like we all sort of have like this like overarching main goal of where we want to end up, or, or I mean, some of us do, um, but where we want to end up eventually or in like, you know, five, 10 years. And then the day job, the grind, everything we have to do in order to just, you know, survive and get to that point. And it does kind of, it, it, I guess that's where the model of uh, the main quest or the story quests and all the sub quests came from for all video games and stuff. Yeah, it's like, you're just, you're trying to head there and you have that 
motivation, that goal, but you just keep getting pulled this way and that way by all this other shit that just keeps coming up. And that is very much life. <laughs> no, it's just fine because like, you know, we have like, in World of Warcraft, they have these things called daily quests, which are basically like jobs. Like you go in there and you do it and you're like grinding faction or- But do you get, get actual easier. money for it, Brent? Not like actual money, but you get rewarded in the game, which is just like life. Yeah. In so. the case of uh, Mary Sue, especially, she's, uh, it's only five issues in, so there's not a lot of development, but I can give you a peek behind the curtain in the sense of she has this really powerful suit that can change uh, like an exosuit. It can fly, it can go underwater, it has powerful laser guns and so and so. And the joke is that she's ultra powered, but she sucks at using it. She's really com uh, clumsy and she hates doing work, but she herself could technically take over the universe with this suit if she wanted to, but she's not, she just doesn't have the drive for it. But what interests me is in the first two issues, this, this crisis happens where uh, bad guys get away and she wants revenge. And I could force the story to go in the direction that she wants it to go, where she just gets on her ship and immediately beelines for them and whatever happens, happens. But then there's all these side things that also will show character development, things like her past and how she got the suit in the first place and her bizarre uh, mentor who <laughs> is, is trying to find her work, but she's it's so bad at it. Yeah, like she ends up paying damages to her clients and losing all the money that she would have gotten. <laughs> and I, I still have to finish that underwater story, uh, which was supposed to finish on issue five, but then interesting things happen. So I expanded the story more and that keeps happening. As I keep writing, I'm like, oh, let's keep doing more issues in this direction. It's like, no, she has to leave the underwater <laughs> town. But no, it's like, no, no, no. There's more interesting things that can happen yeah. while she's down there. It, that's, like, an, that's an exciting writing process, though. It's like you do have, like, a kind of loose plan, yeah. right? So it's not like you have no plan, but there's very much, like, a natural evolution that you're allowing to happen. And I like the idea of, like, just kind of letting the characters tell the story. But sometimes maybe you do have to reel the characters in because like, you know what their personalities are like, like you said, the character might just want to go directly for that. But is that realistically how a story will play out? Sometimes something will come in, interrupt the direction that the character's going in and they end up somewhere else. And I think it's kind of up to the writer to find that balance between what would this character do, but also I don't want to make the story too predictable either. Yeah, it's interesting about the writing process is one thing that I, I picked off of uh, Stephen King in his book on writing he describes the process as more of like excavating the story. Like the writer, like a lot of people see the writer and they think, okay, you're the writer, you're in charge. You're just deciding what happens every step along the way. You are the side or you're the king, you're the God. And yes, that is true. But on the other hand, like you create these characters and you want the story to be true to the characters. And, and then and maintaining that is actually what keeps the spell of the story believable, uh, which is why Marvel is having a lot of trouble because a lot of their stories are not right. believable. Um, you don't want to see the writer's hand in the puppet yeah. show. Yeah, exactly. The, 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 the fucking wires have to be invisible in order for the illusion of the puppet show yeah. to be maintained. Yeah. And so uh, it, it's, it's fun to watch you go through that process and learn more about 
about uh, Rosemary. Uh, one thing I also wanted to mention, I didn't know what the Mary Sue archetype was until like reading through, you know, like I know that you were, I knew that there was an archetype and I knew that you were referencing it, but I didn't know what it was. So I had to like look it up and I was you like, you want to go into that or maybe George can explain. <laughs> yeah, George, why don't you explain, explain what the Mary Sue trope is? Oh, I'll probably explain it poorly, but um, it's the archetype of, I think it originated with Star Trek fan fiction, something like that, where a character was named Mary Sue, I think, and she was this new, she wrote herself as this godlike character, sort of, everybody loved her, she did everything perfectly, <laughs> and when she died at the end of the story, all the characters like mourned her and saluted her and she could do no wrong. So there's a stereotype of say Ray from Star Wars. That's who I was thinking of. It's exactly what I was yeah. thinking of. I'm like That's that's uh, one of them. But anytime a Mary Sue pops up, it's it's an overpowered, usually a female character. There's a male version called Gary Stew, I think. <laughs> and um but the idea is that they're they have no imperfections. They're the main character. It's like God wrote himself into the story and uh, they're just perfect. And that really makes for bad writing. If that jives with what you guys read as research. Yeah. yeah they, another thing that Stephen King said in on writing is avoid inserting yourself in the story, which is kind of ironic because he does that in he his does. magnum opus and it's kind of weird, but um, that's one of the things he says. And you have to also watch out for uh, sort of like, writing for the character you know putting yourself in in a, in a particular character's perspective and then writing the story such that it benefits them constantly and that they're like the most amazing thing because interesting writing is writing where the characters are flawed that they have these these innate uh character flaws just like normal people that they have to wrestle with and grapple with and it often gets them into trouble was it was it peterson who was talking about like what happened with superman comics because i remember he was talking i think it was him talking about this concept but superman eventually got to a point like where the sales dropped because they like he just started becoming too powerful and this is why they had to invent kryptonite because the stories became boring people couldn't relate to superman anymore the next thing you know he's so powerful he's juggling planets and shit like he has no flaws there's nothing wrong with him that he becomes so far removed from humanity that it becomes difficult for humans to relate and this is why i say like greek myths are so popular because the gods themselves are very human they aren't these perfect beings so yeah i mean they were the Greek gods specifically were personified ideas. So in, in order to tell a story back then, it was too abstract to say, uh, I don't know, this, the god of wisdom did X, Y, and Z. Or no, there was no god of wisdom. So wisdom became a person, and then the story became more understandable because we understand what we are, sort of. And it helped us understand what humans were and desires. So if back then it was... It was odd that, you know, Zeus became a bull and banged some woman or something. But in the abstract, that must mean something if you think about it. Um, uh, as far as telling stories goes, uh, how do I put it? With Superman, there's a, there's a thing called power creep in storytelling, I think. It, it, are you guys familiar with Dragon Ball? Yeah. Enough. Yeah. I mean, long I watched time. it growing up. I watched it growing up too, but I haven't <laughs> seen it in years. Well, for the sake of the listeners, let's say that there's a there's five characters, and each one has a different power level of like one to ten. Some guy is a ten, some guy is an eight, you know, whatever. It's really exciting to see the guy with the lower power level 
have to beat the boss with the higher power level and say a six has to beat a 10. So he has to train really hard. And it's really exciting because is he going to win? How can he possibly win against a 10? And then it's really exciting and he beats the 10 just by an inch and everyone's cheering and that's what a good story is. And then, unfortunately, someone shows up and he's a level 100. And how, how do we beat him? We have to train extra hard now. And what happens is the numbers keep going up until you're so f- you're in the millions at one point. And it just is so abstract and weird that I, I, George, am maybe a power level three. You know, I'm not a, I don't ha- I can't shoot fireballs. But the, the joke, not the joke, the point of a story like that is you want to feel the power of the main character who you're cheering for and identify with their struggle. I like to read a story. I was just chatting with a nice lady the other day about um, my children's stories about mice. Um, and she was saying that she identifies with mice characters because she always felt little and oh. underpowered. And she likes to read a story where a mouse saves the day, even though they're little. And the hobbits in the Lord of the Rings are the same yeah. way. Same time. Yeah, amazing that a little hobbit like Frodo can travel all the way to Mount Doom and save the day. So I, a mere reader who has no powers, can identify with the weakest character. We like to cheer for the underdogs. Yep. And that's why I'm so offended by like a Captain Marvel and these writers are such idiots. I don't understand why they keep doing this mistake, but good for me, I guess. Like, <laughs> I want to create a powerful female character, they say. So her power is that she can punch things really hard and shoot lasers that kill the universe. And how am I supposed to, I, a man, I can't relate to that. I can't do that. I, I cheer for like Spider-Man who has real life problems. He can't pay his rent. That's why I like Spider-Man. Yeah. <laughs> I like Batman because he has no real powers aside yeah. from his, he's clever and intelligent. And and rich. Don't forget rich. Well, rich, rich, rich t- it is identifiable in the sense of we say, if only I had that money and intelligence, maybe I could be a little bit like Batman. So he's relatable far more to me than Superman. That's a good point. In general, I think overpowered characters are a joke. Um, And I never create a character like that in my fiction unless it's like, say, One Punch Man. Uh, If you want a fun series that plays with the idea of the overpowered protagonist, One Punch Man, the anime and manga, is really funny in that he's so strong he's bored. But he's bored of his own story. <laughs> That's fine. I have not seen One Punch Man yet. It's, it's awesome. fun. If you have uh, access to the anime, you would enjoy the first season at least. Awesome. Yeah, no, that's and that's kind of the interesting twist on it. Like they they were very self aware of what they were doing writing that story, and they included the fact that having an overpowered protagonist makes the story boring, and they were mocking that trope with by using it. It's actually really clever, clever writing. Yeah. Um, the other thing, to oh, so you said you had like thirty uh, ish issues of of Mary Sue lined yeah. up. But you got to figure out the. So, how often do you think you'll be? So, like maybe like one a quarter. You know, as often as they come. I wish I could answer that. Like I've been circling the bull, thinking about that for months. I think I finished episode five, issue five, in December. So what? Man, that's ten months ago. Oh yeah. Man, 
And it's all right. So I had done an Indiegogo for, uh, hey, pay me to do these three issues or something. And then a bunch of people paid me. And it was very nice. But then I'm thinking, like, how am I supposed to find time out of my schedule to pay myself to do another issue, which is going to end on another cliffhanger? And then people have to wait another six months for the rest, for the next issue, which will also end on a cliffhanger. It's like, the, I, I can't serve my audience. I'll just be pissing people off and leaving them high and dry. And I think it will end up annoying people. So another option. It might, but look, devoted fans, devoted fans who are true fans will wait a long time. And I'm, I'm speaking as like, like a tool fan right now. I don't know if you listen to the band tool, Something. but us motherfuckers waited like 15 years for that new record. I'm just saying and like, and we, we kept checking. We kept listening to the music and like, Checking the news but once in a while. Where's that record? But, so, but <laughs> albums is one thing, and also like the the nature of the story is episodic, and they're also they're very quick to consume, yeah, and they take very long time to produce. What it's a I challenge. mean, what I mean is, once you find that dedicated audience who really truly loves what you do, they will wait for you sometimes, even when they're pissed at you. Like we were all mad at Tool. We were like, Tool, come on, just put the fuck out already. Just finish the goddamn thing, you know. <laughs> Yeah. But we still listened to it when it came out, you know, we still, <laughs> we still flocked there. So yeah, wait. it would be like releasing one song at a time in my case. And people are saying, just put out the whole album. Put the album out, yeah. It's, it's hard because I also am, th I'm playing with the idea of what if I wrote the story or other stories as well as prose novels, which can tell the story and I can even illustrate them, but even though they're made to be comics, there is something that's going to be lost there, but at least the story's done. And then people can enjoy some of what I intended. Because let's say I only have so many months left in my career, let's say uh, hundreds, I don't know how to calculate it. Let's say I retire at 70 if I'm lucky. So I only have maybe 25-ish years of good work left in me. And there are so many stories I want to tell, and there's just no way I can draw them all on my current budget even. If I got famous and got lots of money, I still couldn't do it by myself. I would have to hire staff. And so I'm thinking like, maybe I'll turn it into a book, but then I have to teach myself to write better. And because yeah. that, that that's a different medium for sure. And it is important to consider those things too. You know, what medium are you putting the story into? Because yeah. writing a novel is definitely not the same thing as writing. Also, you your know, pictures are so or... pretty. Oh my god, I gotta show some of these too. Like just the opening, it. like the first page, I was like in awe. So everybody can see. This is the top panel. Just like the ship in space, and then we get a zoom in. Big spaceship. Oh, it's not. It's too dark, Brent. It's too dark. It's not showing <laughs> up great. But it's really pretty. And I love it. And the colors are amazing. Oh, and I wanted to really, uh, this is one of the things I wanted to bring up was your ability to draw like dudes that are <laughs> fucking hot and you're straight. I'm like, how does that, how does like this guy is one of my favorite. He's so Brent, I'm, I'm pretty sure straight guys can draw attractive men. I, know, I don't that think work? that's ever been a skill that has ever been like just limited. Just, I, it fascinated me. I was like, damn, like George can draw some like really pretty chicks. Granted, he can draw really hot guys. Granted, I guess the gays probably would draw them particularly good, but. Well, but <laughs> you would think so, but it's, 
George, go ahead. As you guys know I am secretly gay. So. <laughs> oh, pull the picture up. Show everyone. You don't even grab my tits. Like this is this is out. I, I couldn't. I couldn't help myself. Everyone fucking knows this already. Like just so everyone knows. Yeah. George is out of the closet. That's it. That's that's how I can draw handsome men. That's the secret. Watch those hands, because they will study you. Those hands will study you, and that's how he draws them. So. That's true. <laughs> oh man. Uh, yeah, but I think I was thinking about this the other day. I have received when you gave me that compliment, Brent. Um, I've had comments. I won't say who they were. I suppose out of politeness, other gay men have said I draw really sexy men. Let's say, and and then the question they would always ask afterwards is, "Are you gay?" It's like, well, I think there's something with artists, like say Michelangelo and Donatello and those guys with their statues and stuff. They think about the ideal. The ideal figure any person i'm trying to draw i'm always thinking i'm trying to tell myself how can i make this look better more statuesque more idealized uh, comics and all all art really is like all beauty let's say is what's how can i make this good thing even better how can i make it so sublime not to say that I'm, my characters look that good but i always want to try to uh take a character see that's the thing though i'm talking in too many different directions if i go to a museum and i look at amazing statues and stuff i don't feel any sexual desire for the men no offense to them but i still look at the human machine and i say that is so amazing and beautiful and how can i make those curves even more amazing to look at and for a guy like myself i look at you know david the statue and i think I could theoretically have that body if I work out and stuff. Um, but that only only because the human animal psychologically wants to be filled with awe and admiration. And as an artist, I guess I'm unusual. I'm different from, see, I don't think I'm different from most guys because they, they go to the gym and talk about, man, hey, bro, you have amazing muscles. No, Good I think I you. think we're just, you're comfortable with your own sexuality that there's no like need to even explain it. You know, it's like, and it shouldn't even be weird that a straight male artist can draw beautiful men and paint beautiful men. It's not an it's unusual. It's not weird to me, no. But I would love to talk about this with, say, a critic who's trying to talk, like, if they want to say, like, you you secretly are repressed and yada yada. It's, I think know? it would depend on how much nude men you started producing then i would have questions i'll be like i don't know he just he paints a lot of naked dudes let's critically analyze this artist here i don't know he might be gay pretty sure michelangelo was like bi at least he definitely wrote, he wrote poems and stuff to uh men so i do think he was probably attracted to men on some level because yeah. the way that he sculpted them was so detailed yeah. and but again as an artist i don't know if i can speak for other non-artist guys but like I would look at that stuff all day with pure admiration and yeah. study it and want to be able to make that myself. There is no better sculptor in human history, maybe. Um, so I, I can't, I think it's silly to look at, even that movie Bros, we could talk about that sometime, <laughs> where they, there were screenshots posted about like they were like, I don't know what that, I guess they were uh, having a good time with multiple yeah. guys and stuff. I look at that screenshot and the first thing that I think of is, oh man, if I drew that guy, look at those back muscles, yeah. look at those, look <clears> at the way his back is shaped. And, and I'm thinking as a 
the human machine and all the little bones and muscles and how, how can I recapture that and replicate it? How would I draw that? Yeah, that I'm the same. Always, I'm the yeah. same as a painter. It's the same exact thing, you know. And and I, I look at women's bodies that way too, not just men's bodies. Although I haven't really painted many women. But um, when I do, it's going to be the same sort of thing. You know, there's no like sexual arousal. But even when I look at like attractive art of men, there's not always sexual arousal. Maybe sometimes, but often I'm in that artist mode, like you're describing. And sex isn't the thing I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about the um, the particular techniques that they're doing, or how did they achieve that effect here? You know, or getting really close and looking at the brush strokes and to make that muscle pop out in this way or that way, you know? So like my brain is very much looking at it in an artist sort of way where I'm de deconstructing it in a sense. And I'm not really thinking about it in a sexual way, but you know, if the art is a particularly compelling piece of art and the figure in it, right, is that beautiful, one would hope that it does inspire some sort of arousal in the person viewing it. Cause that means you kind of like very much achieved what you were trying to do. You captured something really beautiful to the point where it was like sexy as well. Well, I'd see the trouble with that. Like part of comics as a visual medium is to communicate subconscious um, information that maybe the reader doesn't even know that they have there. So I was thinking in, in issue three, there's a mermaid guy and yeah, yeah. I show his butt, let's say. Because yeah, nice butt. I, know, I designed him to have a butt, A, because I think it's funny with mermaids. I like but, that. I like it. It's really Look, I, I know I have a lot of lady readers who maybe would appreciate something like that just for fun. And service, bro. <laughs> but what, see, to me, though, as a person who makes something a product for people to consume, I want to make my audience happy. It's, these are things that even Mary Sue, the character, is A, made to be attractive, but B, she's designed to be relatable as well. So if you have a lady reader, she's... The, the character, Rosemary, is going to have lots of guys that she likes in the series. And I hope to actually expand, like, relationships for her and dating and whatnot. Um, I, want, I want someday to see readers arguing about who's the best boyfriend or husband, or, you know, like the waifu. Who should she get with, yeah. <laughs> who should she, who should she end uh, up with, yeah. Who's the that. hottest guy for her to end up with, and I want to... I want to give lots of options for people to argue about. So you got the guy in the first two books, his name is Songbird. He's yeah. maybe the bad boy type. Yeah, he's hunky. Sure. And then, you know, the mermaid guy is... More the, sensitive. Sure, the artsy type. And he's also royalty. Yeah. There's other guys. And see, now I, I could give you spoilers, but like there's the, the problem with the royalty is she has to choose who's going to be the next king or queen in this kingdom, let's say. Right. But everyone else who's eligible has to be sacrificed to their god. So here's this nice guy who, you know, is kind of cute or whatever. She thinks he's cute. But he's clearly not qualified to be a king. So if she doesn't pick him, he's going to die. Oh, dear. So, so A, she doesn't get, you know, to kiss the prince. But B, she doesn't want people to die because she doesn't know what to choose. So in the next few issues, her thing is to resolve that somehow to the best of her ability. And I'm really looking forward to doing that. But again, it takes a lot of time. Um, but yeah, there's, there's going to be guys for her to 
be courting, let's say, and Songbird's especially interesting to me because he is a bad guy, technically. Spoilers. But he's also got reasons for being a bad guy. And I want her, I want us to see her wrestle with that. As a professional, she has one thing that she needs to do for her job. She needs to arrest a guy and put him in jail. On the other hand, she doesn't want to arrest him. She likes him, but she's also mad at him. And she also has a million bazillion laser guns. So what's she going to do? You know, yeah. I, I like that she doesn't know the answer yet. I know the answer, but she doesn't. So that's that's fun. That's a good story. So I, it's really about finding time. Yeah, and I wanted to say that issue three especially, I was laughing loudly every page turn. I mean, this whole intro where the fox, like Bork, just bites the crap out of her and she's like climbing out. I mean, the facial expression here where she's like in abject horror. Yeah. This one, I, was, I was like, oh, that's so classic, you, you, George. You can see the, the anime influence in that too and the manga influence. Like, I always loved that they did that in Japanese animation. Like sometimes they would just do these just exaggerated reactions. <laughs> Change the art style. She's climbing out covered in blood. <laughs> she just killed me. I was like, oh my God. Sliding yeah. down the side of her ship and there's a blood trail. Yeah, yeah. It's not even, she wasn't even in a fight. I, that makes me laugh. Yeah. I like that her pet hates her, which box. is based and that's based on my cat, who she loves being pet and stuff. But then she says, "Enough! Don't touch me." Yeah, and it's Tell so funny. Are. Yeah, I love animals that are crazy. Uh, yeah, Bork has a lot of personality, and I love it. And I, I love that he's a fox. You know, it's a little bit different than a dog. Or cat, a cat. Cats are definitely like that, though. It's very much like on their terms. You know, like, all right, I want attention now. All right, I'm done with the attention. Leave me alone. And, it's like, and that scene was also useful because it introduces a mechanic in the story of their mermaid saliva heals wounds and stuff. Hmm. And that makes it like in Star Wars. Are you guys Star Wars guys? I can't remember. We are. We're fans. All right, so in KOTOR, I remember there was this whole thing about where Bacta comes from, the Bacta tank. It's like a healing tank. Long story short, uh, we wanted to do this rare um, saliva of this race of people underwater will heal anybody who's of the race that Mary Rosemary is. It makes it incredibly valuable. And in order to get a whole case of the saliva, she has to do this thing that she didn't even know she had to do because her mentor tricked her. And so we have a comedic situation where she's slashed up from her animal and dying in this ocean. And then the comedy ends real quick and, oh, hey, here's a really important story thing. This stuff heals you instantly. And uh, so later in later issues, that's going to come up again, I hope. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great mechanic. And I also I was wondering, you know, as as the reader, I was like, oh, shit, how is she going to I mean, she's like bleeding and I was bleeding out right yeah. now. How the heck is he going to get her out of this situation? And then he's like, oh, I can just lick you all over. Well, it's, it's good. Yes! Right? It's good writing too, to like make sure that to make sure that you bring those things back later. And it's not just a random one off thing. You know, it's part of the world building. Yeah. Right. So you don't just want to be like, oh, the saliva, you know, you can use it for this. And then you never hear about this again. It never appears in the story again. It serves no other purpose later. You know, good writing, it's going to throw those things in there and they're going to become relevant later. Like I, So I only read issue one, like I said earlier, but, you know, just like the references to like her father, you're already like getting hints that this is going to be important later to some extent. And it's just kind of stuff that's dropped into conversation 
and you could easily miss it, but there's already bits of like foreshadowing of what's going to play out later or what will be important later. Yes. Yeah, yeah the but, goal, you want to throw red herrings out and then just, but again, it's a comic, so it's not yeah. like Game of Thrones where there's a million sure. different theories. It's like, maybe this is a thing, maybe this is nothing. Let's have some fun and keep reading and have a good story time. So, but that's the thing is, as I was writing all these scripts, I'm thinking so far ahead that maybe I'm setting up things that won't even resolve for 20 issues. And I feel bad about that. So. No, I think that's good, though, because it shows that you're putting forethought into it. And and who knows, you know, the future is open. You never know. Some wealthy, you know, billionaire, millionaire might come along and be like, George, you need to finish this. Here's all the money you need. Go. I mean, you just got to keep doing it, man. Like I was saying before, I think that devoted audience will stick with you and they'll be patient, you know. Just I also because think they like what you do and they appreciate it. Shortly and not too distant in the future, you will probably be able to feed your art style into an AI oh, and God, then tell it what you want it to show. <laughs> and then you can like pick through a bunch of variations. <laughs> I mean, it's possible. Yeah, like, it's already happening. You yeah. have a very specific style. And I especially love the way you do like explosions and energy. It's just like, it reminds me of like the rave scene back in the day because it's, it's just like light and and color everywhere what i will say as a uh, like a traditional fine artist someone who paints in oil paint um i've dabbled in digital and things like that but i've always been more prone to just physically painting you know you've made me appreciate digital brushwork more which is something i guess i never quite took as seriously but you definitely have a particular style in your brushwork and it's weird to even call it brushwork because it's mouse work. I don't know. Like, what the fuck do you it's call stylus. it? I mean, it's not stylus work because it's not brushwork, but it's the same sort of concept just digitally as, you know, like the texture and that sort of thing that you get yeah. when you're I've always valued uh, physical over digital, and I still do. Um, but I can't deny the convenience yeah. that... Uh, a stylus allows me in Photoshop and stuff. So mm -hmm. I do like to draw in such a way where my strokes are still visible. And I have certain rules for myself where even people will meme on me where they say I can't draw hands, let's say. And I, when I do my under sketch in, in pencil, I have a rule where I don't correct mistakes once I've made them. In the same way that if I was oil painting, and I draw a blob for a hand. If I was an impressionist, I would not finish that hand because I only have a few hours to finish this piece. So I paint as if I was drawing with physical media and I intentionally don't fix errors that I could fix digitally. Um, but if I was painting in plain air 200 years ago in France, I would not have had time to fix that. Um, so I, I paint as if I'm using oil, if that makes sense. So Daniel, there is a way to train yourself. If you're ever interested, we could uh, workshop it sometime. It, it can be a useful skill to paint digitally as if you're painting with oil. You can attune your brushes so that it behaves just like oil. Cool. Yeah, I've dabbled. I have one piece I'll show you later. It was like a still life that was uh, commissioned by a friend of mine. And I very much tried to do that with that piece. I tried to paint it as if I, you know, I didn't even use lines. Like I didn't, like I did, I think a rough sketch, very rough. And then just painted everything in color. Yeah. I had a teacher call, he called it blocking. Um, yeah. Like say I have a vase 
with a table and some utensils. Each one would just be a block of color. Yes. And then you go in and do the details. Yeah. So that's that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of how I paint too, like oil wise. Like I don't do all the prima, not normally. I definitely paint in layers. And yes, it takes a long time, that process, especially with oil, because oil could take a while to dry. Yeah. Um, I use certain mediums like liquid to speed that process up. Yeah. And it's what I really like about oil is you can like slow or speed up the drying time. And once you figure out how to do that, that's how you can achieve some really interesting things. But um, I mean, I understand like the convenience too with digital, like there's no cleanup, you know, <laughs> there's no dry time. There's, there's no like materials you have to keep buying and replacing and brush cleaning and all of those things that go along with it. But there's still something to be said, I think for, the physical medium. I don't think it's ever going to lose like importance. And I think um, your approach is a really interesting one because it's like fusing the two together in a sense. It's like, yeah, you're behaving as if you're painting in a, in a physical medium, but you're not, you know, it's all, it's all visual. It's all pixels. And well, I like when I can see the human hand, yeah. we talked about AI art and it's so polished a lot yeah. of the time. And I just don't like when there are artists, I won't name them, I guess, who paint in such a way or draw digitally that you can't see any of their strokes. And that, that actually annoys me. I don't like, I think it's lifeless. I want yeah. to see mistakes. It's like jazz. I want, to, I want them to kind of break character sometimes. And just to remind me that a real human's making this. I don't want to see too much machine, perfection, straight lines. I never use a ruler. I always draw my straight lines by hand so that there's just a little bit of curves and a little bit of imperfections because I think there's value in looking at a line and saying, I could do that if I just practiced a little bit and it just makes it more real. That's why some people are really, really into ink art and line art. There's something about a pen stroke that says, I do that all the time. I know what that feels like. You can almost feel the strokes. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering um, if unless there's anything else you want, do you want to give like a little, like maybe a little spoiler, maybe a little preview of where the story with Mary Sue, you're going to do one more issue underwater, you think, or? Well, I could. That's the, <laughs> that's the thing though. I know yes, that there's more that happens, but if I wanted to sort of see if readers are bored, I can take it in another direction. So where you left off, she just blew up a underwater, what do you call it? Like a forward operating base that she discovered was like this corporation's vacation spot slash research lab. She blew it up by accident because she was going to be arrested by a robot controlled by a guy that she's never met before from like some remote security firm. And long story short, she was waylaid from her other mission which was to choose man i'm telling this terribly <laughs> she keeps getting distracted and her her only mission was to retrieve this case of saliva and pick a new king or queen and she can't do that because she's crazy and she's derpy and i love that she can't just pick someone and say, okay, screw you guys. Uh, good luck. I'm taking my thing and I'm leaving. She yeah. has this moral code that she doesn't know that she has. So I can tell you that she has not decided a king or a queen choice. There are multiple people fighting. It's like Game of Thrones, but 
way lamer. And <laughs> I love that. She she has this friend who she has to basically decide, am I going to let him die? And he may or may not be the child of her mentor. Right. Yeah, I caught that. And what I like about that is that he doesn't seem to care that he has that those two children right. with the queen. So uh, again, spoiler talk. So her mentor, I guess, banged the queen of the fish people. <laughs> <laughs> Who is not attractive? What is? What is? Those jokes of like, would you bang a mermaid if she had a fish head and a wings? <laughs> yeah. Well, he he's a horny bastard, so he yep. did that. Oh god. And and so he had these two twin kids, a guy and a girl, and the girl is way nastier than the guy. But there's all this dumb drama that never gets addressed. But anyway, he doesn't seem to care if one of his kids dies. In fact, he doesn't even want to acknowledge that he has kids. Right. He sent Rosemary to pick up the stuff because he didn't want to look at the consequences of the choices he made 30 years ago. Right. So she has to choose now. Maybe she's going to choose. I can tell you what she does choose, but it. No, don't spoil that. Spoil it. I'm not going to spoil but, she, but that's the thing is I don't want to drop the ball on that. I could just fast forward to her next adventure, but I don't want to leave this hanging. No, I don't, I don't think you should. I think you should tell the story the way that you feel is most natural without worrying about satisfying your audience so much because your audience wants you to tell the story in the way that you feel it's meant to be told and not to be rushed by external pressures or whatever. Um, so I would just go with your pacing, you know, like if it takes a long time, it takes a long time. And that's just the nature of writing. I mean, look at fucking George R. R. Martin. He's never going to finish those books. He's probably never going to finish. You know what I mean? So like you just do your thing. And as they come out, they come out and we will appreciate, I will buy every single one. Well, with, <laughs> with all of that, I was thinking we could, uh, I guess, talk a little bit about some of George's other projects, right? Yes. I wanted to talk about, do you want to talk about the horror romance or do you want to talk about the kids book first? Uh, anything, um, whatever you guys are interested in. Let's talk about the kids book. Cause that's uh, that's definitely changing gears. So you okay. have his kids book. That's a story about mice. Do you want to give a little preview? You want to tell the parents out there what it's about so that they can get excited to buy it up for their kids? Well, the project is, uh, how do I, the story is about just a little mouse kid. He's a cute little, uh, adventurous type and he has to pick some nice berries for his mom's pie that she made for her husband his dad and he the story is about i guess picking the best berry and he could pick the one that's outside of his house which is very easy to get or he can travel further and get better berries but then there's more risk i love that and, and it's harder for him to bring them back so he has to decide how far he wants to go and maybe he runs into obstacles along the way. It's just this little 50-page pseudo-comic, but also prose. Um, I don't know what to compare it to. It's not exactly, it's not like it's written in that way of the mouse jumped on the hill, the mouse jumped on the other thing. And it's written like five words per page. It's not like that. So. Um, it's written with lots of text in mind, I suppose. What would you say the age range is for it? Uh, that's also another problem for me because I think it's going to need to be read to kids by parents, like at bedtime. I don't think kids are going to be able to read it 
even though it's really, I would say from like five to 10, perhaps that age range. Um, but it does contain words that they probably won't be able to read. So I think it's going to, it's going to be a parents with kids is the audience probably. Yeah, I just took a little screenshot you had up here on your Instagram. The little guy in his little pizza box bed is so cute. His little adventure key. I love it. It's it's really one of those things where I, I used to read children's books all the time, like uh, Roald Dahl's stuff, illustrated by a guy named Quentin Blake. And his stuff was so amazing, and I love it still. And I've always wanted to illustrate cutesy stories but with lots of uh, sweetness and i've been trying to for a long time like my comics that people know me for i think are pretty sarcastic and dark humor but i wanted to make something that was fully 100 percent sweet and innocent um that's so cute i love the art on the cover here it looks amazing i mean i think it's also important to like take a break from the more serious stuff which like i guess i guess mary sue is already sort of a break from the more serious stuff but even a break from that you know yeah. it's something just totally lighthearted and wholesome and it, it fits better too because um we're my family's making a family shop for like young parents and kids so we're not just launching this book with that shop it's also going to be uh bibs dresses shoes, all kinds of like little things that you could get for a kid that's of varying ages. But at our age, I know a lot of couples who are now having kids or have multiple kids under 10, let's say, but we want to offer something for new parents. That's like, there's a lot of things out there being presented for kids. That's inappropriate. I think yeah. a lot of people are criticizing that. So not I'm only it's important to me to not just criticize that, but I want to also put something into the world that's an alternative that yep. is sweet and innocent. And yeah. Yes. It's, yeah. it's well, just a little mouse adventure. It's cute. And the things that my family is making for the shop are so sweet and innocent. And it's, it's just a nice little something we could put into the world that's wholesome. Yeah. Well, I think it, it, it does also relate to the bigger picture in the way that you're describing, because, you know, like you said, there is a lot of this inappropriate stuff being put out right now, this woke propaganda and things like that, that's being passed off as, uh, you know, children's books when really it's just more indoctrination. Um, this is part of the culture war, too, you know, is, is contributing another option for people to idea say idea weapons yeah idea weapons and i know tim pool talks about this on his show all the time too is that we do kind of have to shift focus away from just the politics and the, you know all that stuff all the time and and look at culture you know look at art look at music and entertainment um you know you're seeing some of that from the conservative side more now especially with stuff like the daily wire like they're producing their own movies and stuff but well, it was a very famous quote from andrew breitbart politics is downstream from culture from culture yeah and that's so. You know, we've seen that. We've seen evidence of that all throughout the 2020, 2021 period. You know, we were thought that we were this law and order yeah. society. And then George Floyd gets murdered on a you know very viral video clip. And the entire country just goes nuts for months and months and months on end. And it was very clear that that was a cultural thing. And the reason the laws weren't enforced was because it was a cultural phenomenon. And there was this sort of mainstream uh, 
pushed cultural tolerance for that kind of behavior, which is the exact opposite of what we saw when J6 came around. And the conservatives were like, oh, they've been rioting for months. We can have one. Yeah. But, and they were like, absolutely not. Now there's well, still people in jail. Well, the thing about what you're talking about here is, and to link it back to the point I'm making is like, yeah, BLM and all these movements and stuff, it's all political, but they're also, they're making art. They're using symbols, you know, they're putting propaganda out there. And a lot of it is very sophisticated propaganda when you look at the, the mainstream woke left, right? And that's kind of, you know, and I think, I think we had this conversation when we were hanging out a couple months ago, George, like in person. And we were talking about, I guess, like how a lot of the right or conservatives tend to not value art as much. And I think it is one of their like fatal flaws that they need to address perhaps, you know, not everyone with an art degree is just some loser who couldn't get a job. You know, there is value in this stuff. And if they don't see that value and use it more, um, I don't see how they're going to they're gonna win in the culture war because <laughs> they're not when it comes to the art. But I think also the tides are probably turning, you know, like I shouldn't speak too soon either. I think there are people for sure more and more. It feels like we're getting tired of the woke shit as well. So finding creators who are willing to work for less than minimum wage is very difficult um you get it's kind of uh necessity is the mother of invention kind of thing where someone like me had been struggling to find an audience for over a decade and then i saw this opening in the culture where i said if i just serve an audience that i'm already kind of a part of maybe i can find a way for me to make a name for myself so I was willing to work for free for many years, and now I'm kind of making some money at it, but I'm still nowhere near the point where I could do it full time. Yeah. Um, so we are too, man, with the show and stuff. So, and that's where I am in my art career as well. Like, pulled in some money, I've sold some paintings, but it's hard, man. It really is. Yeah. So we're taking a gamble. We're assuming that somewhere down the road, this is going to pay off, even though we're working for free now. And that's the entrepreneur spirit, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, but there are also places like, well, I guess I won't name them out of respect, but there are places who are funding creators under an umbrella that, oh, here's our company and we're going to publish X, Y, and Z people. Uh, maybe that'll work out. Maybe... Maybe that's not the model we need. I don't know. I think we should try a little bit of everything. I would love it if I could get super funded from uh, an entity, but then I also am a control freak and I don't work well with others. So I don't know if I could work with yeah. no, you a would, publisher. You would need a publisher. You need somebody that would give you like like an angel investor, an angel investor who would just yeah. give you you know money to just continue to do what you are doing. Let you have creative control. And let you have all the creative control. <laughs> because Maybe. Yeah. You know, I... I don't know if I've said this before. I have been offered that stuff and I said no um, for various reasons. But there's, I think there are opportunities in the air, but it has to be done correctly because there's a lot of predators out there. I should be very vague with this. There's a lot of people who will take advantage of the culture war mm -hmm. by Great. funding someone like myself. They'll super fund me. But then there's all this like creepy fine print that you don't know about. Mm. And I don't trust any of that stuff either. So I'm not eager to take free money. To, um, to, re to reiterate the intro, the wandering cartoonist who serves no master. No master. <laughs> it's tongue in cheek. But I, 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 would prefer, I want to work for my audience directly. 
And I don't necessarily, I'm not in a rush to involve middlemen who might have shadow money from yeah. God knows where. Um, if I, George, cannot make more than X per month, I don't know where in the world he thinks or this group thinks they're going to make money off my name. Yeah. I can't do it myself. Where's their money coming from? So I get very suspicious with that stuff. Um, as you should, as you should. But again, we know that the far left has been doing this for many years where they've been funding Hollywood. You know, Razor Fist has that famous video of uh, Hollywood was always red. And that's a really important video, just talking about how there were all these like secret communists funding all kinds of movies, even back as far as the 40s, maybe. And um, there's they know to fund culture because it's their religion. It, it fuels their religion, whereas the right already has a religion. And I think they're willing to you get like silly stories like Bible Man or just cheesy say christian yeah uh, not not cheesy bad but like I, you have to make a lord of the rings you that's can't... why i was just thinking about that i'm like you know you have to be able to incorporate those religious themes into your world building into your story in a way that is not just so in your face and apparent and browbeating yeah. but it's clear enough in the story where you can see oh these values are derived from these values and tolkien yeah he very much he very much was able to do that in his storytelling without making it obvious, you know, that there were Christian themes in it. Yeah. Star Trek, uh, the next generation did that incredibly well. That's why, I mean, I think it was such a cultural phenomenon in is that the writing quality was just so high and that the values that were being dispersed through the medium were classic liberal yeah. values. So Dr. Who is, this is why Dr. Who is failing right now. And you know, cause it, it went, woke and it started kind of like browbeating the audience with this stuff when doctor who used to not have to do that you didn't you didn't have to make an episode about rosa parks to make a point about racism they did it with groups of aliens and stuff like that to make the point you know yeah. they're desperate to make sure that their message is heard and by doing that you have to trick audiences into it's sort of like casting a spell on them writing is like casting a spell i'm going to yeah. write a sequence of words over a, no, a certain amount of pages and if you read the sequence and download them into your head something will come out of your head that you that wasn't there before it's like magic but if audiences want to give themselves to that because it's pleasurable it's like a, a dream like yeah. i used to read Anne rice novels when i was in my late teens and her the way that she wrote was so hypnotic yeah. And maybe now I would read it again. It would be cheesy. But as a younger man, I would read this stuff. I'm like, wow, I'm in this world. It's beautiful. Um, but I don't like I don't like when an author starts telling me, hey, I, I'm going to put a spell on you now. Keep reading this page. <laughs> it's there's a cheesiness. There's a there's something in my subconscious that I don't want to know that I'm dreaming. Something like that. It's like when the Matrix was talking about there was something in the human mind that rejects perfection. Yes, the original program that that the uh, the architect tried to impose on them because yeah. it was too perfect. Humans want. Yeah, I, I can't believe the story is real unless there are imperfections and 
That's why I don't like stories where the author is in the background and I can see them. You can see the hand, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to talk about your horror romance novel um, or the, the manga. I would love to. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, and please. again, another see, like, I gotta find some video, some pictures. Another here. like totally different genre from what we were just talking about. It's like we're about to go like night and day right now. But, um, you know, what is your interest in horror and why did you decide to even like write a story like that? Um, well, I've, we mentioned Anne Rice before. I like the gothic horror romance. It's weird to think that those genres fit so well together. Um, they do. Mm -hmm. I was something like Phantom of the Opera, for example, the movie. Uh, I'm absolutely in love with it. I love, there's something about the character of like the yeah. Dracula, the, the castles, the rundown buildings, dust, mm -hmm. cobwebs. And then at the same time, I like Jane Austen. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's unusual for a man. I, I don't commonly find too many men who are big Jane Austen fans because <laughs> she very much did write for women, I would say. It's, I, I can't, like, even as a kid, I liked the musicals like Grease. And yeah, me too. I don't, I can't explain. I'm, who cares? More proof, gay. Guys. More proof that George is gay. You heard it here first. No, straight. Well, <laughs> you, know, you know, but like, I, I want to look at those people in the eye who would say that that's weird. And it's like, who cares? Yeah. I like things. I don't need to explain why I like them. Right. Yeah. Well, there's also, there's nothing wrong with men and straight men being touched with sensitive sides and the sensitive subjects and things like that. There's nothing wrong with that shit. I don't wake up and ask for permission to enjoy yeah. things. I just yes. enjoy them. So, like, I know all the lyrics to Phantom of the Opera, you know, stuff like that. I love that stuff. So, Castles, and I was even watching The Addams Family recently, and I love the Gomez-Morticia relationship. Um, there's just something so fun about dressing up and being dark and, yeah. you know, and also Frank romance. So, anyway. Frankenstein I, is a, another good, like, gothic novel. Yeah. And the old Bell Lugosi Dracula and stuff, black oh, and white yeah. films. So yeah. because of that love of black and white stuff and horror romance, I made this story called Bad Dreams, where um, I it started out as I just did an illustration for a little art contest, and it snowballed into this whole story of there's this guy with the magic sword in the woods and he's being attacked by a, a beast, a monster. And it's also kind of like Bloodborne if you've played that game. Um, okay, uh, it's sort of like Lovecrafty, dark monster. Uh, it's, it's straddling a lot of different genres, but anyway. So I, I had to make up this story for a character who was holding a sword in the woods. And then this woman came out of nowhere in my imagination and I said, oh, okay. So she's the love interest. And then let's let's build what their house would look like. And they fall in love. And he's and I started adding all these little details of their of their marriage romance and who he is. And there's this underlying story in this town where it's, he came back from war and their country is perpetually at war, uh, take, going into the corners of the world uh, and taking things from like the ignorant savages. And he came back for some reason and because he had committed a war crime or something. And there's not a lot of men in their country. So there's this monster on the loose killing children. 
and people. And he's the only capable man because he, he's back from the war. All the other men of fighting age are out abroad, you know, attacking every tribe in the middle of nowhere kind of thing. Um, but his whole thing is he's, I guess it's early in the story, but there's a monster on the loose and he's just trying to get his life together. And he meets this nice lady who he likes a lot and she's allegedly seen the monster, but he doesn't quite believe her yet. And so in issue two, there's gonna, it's like a murder mystery. He's gotta go check it out. And mm -hmm. he's trying to put his life of violence behind him, but now it has followed him home. And underlying that, there's, you know, the love story and a little bit of Jane Austen-y flavors. But it's, even in the Jane Austen novels, uh, the men were perpetually abroad. And I always yeah. wondered why, what were they doing? And then you hear about the stories of, like, the East India Company and stuff. And what were they doing out there? And how were they, what were the men doing in the Jane Austen universe? And you only hear about the women and what it's like for them. Yeah, that's true. You put the whole thing, I didn't realize, but you put the whole thing online. Uh, yeah, and nobody, yeah, it doesn't have a lot of attention, but that's okay. Um, but that's the weird thing about a story like this is it doesn't get good numbers, but the people who read it really like it. And mm -hmm. that's a cool feeling. So I want to continue it. I have been drawing it slowly in the background. Um, yeah, I, I love the black and white style. It's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. It definitely creates the vibe of the gothic horror romance. It's a, a I think um, what else did From Hell very much had this yeah. similar style to it, all black and white, kind of rough around the edges. That's a good one. I'm digging it so much. Yeah, I really enjoy the English. There's a lot of contrasting feelings uh, in a story like this. So I hope I get to finish it. Um, I can work on Mary Sue. I can work on this. I can work on my political comics. <laughs> <laughs> and and I have to finish the mouse book. So it's... It's good. I mean, look, at least you're, you're staying busy. You have all these projects that you can work on. Although I imagine it does feel overwhelming and frustrating sometimes when you're not quite seeing, um, you know, the income come in from, from your labor. And I get that, you know, as an artist, I totally understand that. But I don't know, man, you're going places. I would just keep doing it. I would definitely um, keep every project up. And if you have an interest in telling different stories, don't like sacrifice one type of story that you want to tell simply because, you know, I don't know, my audience might not receive it the same way. There will be an audience for that story, just like this one, you know. I appreciate the encouragement. Uh, you guys are right. And I think it's really, I have to convince myself if I'm going to spend X hours per day on something, I need to know that it's going to be worth the time. But I also want to plant seeds for other projects that could be worth my time a year from now. Because um, political stuff, I've been saying this lately. I don't know if I've been saying it um, publicly, but like, I'm really sick of the news. I'm sick of politicians and Same. celebrities. Same. Like, I sit down to draw a strip to make fun of Biden or something, and I'm like, I don't want to draw this asshole ever again. I'm tired. <laughs> I'm sick of them. And, you know, it's fun, and the news needs 
satire and stuff, but I, as a creator, am so fed up with all of it. So, like, maybe well, I, I lose... It makes it more admirable to me, though, that you still do it anyway, because I feel like right now we need satirists. <laughs> we, we need people to push back against these people in the way that you're doing it. Um, cause it, it's just, it cuts right to the core of some of these issues. I think satire has a way of doing that just in a way that like an essay or a speech or something simply can't, you know, it really distills an issue down to its core constituents and stuff. Also your, your satire is so sharp that a lot of people just don't, some don't it. get it. Yet. And I love watching the comments and sometimes I don't even get it at first. Like there's a reference that I miss. I have to look something up. I love it. It's intelligent fucking comedy. And the fact that so many people like have to ask about what it's about, um, it just, it's great because it shows that there's this huge divide in the culture about like just awareness in general. And that some people are aware of all this stuff and, and can get the joke. And then other people aren't aware of it. And that you're even presenting that lack of awareness via comedy, you know, makes people, well, well people like me anyway, question like, okay, what am I missing here? What's, What's the reference that I didn't well, get? I think some things, though, it's a matter of approach as well. Like, it's a matter of, like, some things just aren't meant for everyone to get to. Exactly, There's also exactly. that, you know? And you and have I to... love it. I love so, it. So, like, that's kind of how I am with my poetry, for example. Like, some poems I write and I know, like, all right, this is going to have more general, like, a, like a, this will appeal to a more general audience. More people will be able to relate to this. And then sometimes I write a poem and I'm like, this is going to be really abstract and symbolic like a puzzle and i know most people who read this are going to have to decipher it and most of them aren't going to want to do that so they probably won't get it and that's fine it's not meant for them it's meant for the person who wants to do that and there's nothing wrong with that you know it's like what is your approach to the piece of art that you're putting out and something might be a little more difficult and that's fine you know because you also don't want to dumb things down right you don't want to um I don't underestimate your audience and that sort of thing because i think they can feel that no, from a craft perspective, I, A, want to make sure that the point that I want to make is clear enough to the people who know how to read it. Yeah. And then for the people who don't get it immediately, I trust that the comments will eventually clarify it. Yeah. But I, as a creator, should not say what the story or comic strip is about because then I failed. Yes. And if I, if I do fail, I need to do better next time. So there are strips where people will say, like, is he joking? Where, like, I drew DeSantis as a hurricane. <laughs> We're going to find out. <laughs> and he's destroying Florida. And some people are like, wait, so you're criticizing DeSantis. And then I had to bite my tongue. I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no, this is um, about people criticizing DeSantis. But I can't. I, yeah, if I say that, then the joke dies. Yes. So I have, I have to let people uh, understand. There's another strip I did with Martha's Vineyard recently. Funny, man. Some ladies were saying, oh my gosh, is that an immigrant over there? Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, that one. <laughs> right. And so some people said, wait, are you, George, comparing immigrants to trash? And, it's, and they didn't see the article on NBC where a guy said, bringing your immigrants to Martha's Vineyard is like dropping off your trash in someone else's yard. And... I am okay with people misunderstanding the strips, but it, it's the hardest part is not saying anything when I know they're wrong, but I, I can't I can't clarify because I don't I don't want this strip to be about me. Um, 
it's very important. Like, I don't like doing self-insert jokes where even I was doing the um, jutitsu. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I love those. That's cracks me up. It was it was fun to play that game with Reddit for a little while, but I really don't want me. I don't want the comics to be about me. Um, so it's it's really hard to bite my tongue sometimes. I I do love though when you like randomly insert yourself into the background though of a strip, and you just know because you you do this like this sort of caricature face of yourself. So you're like, oh, that's that's George. <laughs> that's like the uh, the Handmaid's Tale one, where. <laughs> Some some girls were on. I, I didn't see the. They're show. online, right? Wait, yeah, they're they're being like, oh, oh, this one looks fresh. I can impregnate this one, and so I put myself in the back as a, you know a, a creep, because it's funny to be the bad guy, and then some Reddit assholes are like, aha, what's he secretly trying to confess to? <laughs> can I not tell a joke anymore? And I can't, you can't negotiate with these people. So yeah. just say whatever you're going to say. Yeah. Yes, that's true. I'm, I, I hate everybody. I'm a racist. Yeah, sure. Whatever. Yeah. I love that's. <laughs> I love the woman's just thinking, I wish I had an AR thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I cast myself as the bad guy. Yeah. We're all, it's just a comic. We're yeah. just telling jokes here. So but the, the, there's a meta joke to it too, because you're also poking at the, your critics who cast you as this bad guy. So it's honestly, you're like wearing the, you're like wearing the caricature as, you know, it, it's a brilliant reversal. You're just sort of like flipping it. It's like rhetorical or artistic jujitsu where you're taking their, their idea of what you are and you're flipping it around and showing it back and being like, this is actually it. And the funny thing is that when they take that as some sort of like confessional, like, just, you guys well, are I, so dumb. Well, some will double down, but I think some, it probably does disarm them a bit, you know, when you make fun of yourself in this way and you say, oh, well, okay, if you say I'm this, I'm going to, I'm going to like draw myself as this and make fun of the fact that this is what you, this is how you perceive me. You know? Yeah, I, I'm okay with lowering the temperature of the criticism so that we're actually having fun again. Yeah. But I will laugh at myself all day if we can just have some fun, but there are those critics who just want to hurt yeah. and I can't joke around with them. And so I have to ignore them. And then there are my critics who just say, Hey, you're, you're making too many jokes about this subject. Maybe take it easy. And then I say, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm a rapist too. Sure. You know, well, let's have some fun now and let's lower the temperature. Someone's going to clip that out and they're going to just make a clip of nah, that. We don't have that many Same. haters watching our show. <laughs> Not yet. Let them. But, I, but that's the thing is all you can do to really, when someone says crazy things, is, yeah, sure, I'm a racist. I, I hate all those. I especially hate those people. You know what I mean? Oh. You know, those people. With, you know, they do the thing. I the hate thing. them. They're yeah. the worst. They need to be cleansed from oh, the face of their Josh and I were talking about this uh, over the weekend when we were in Burlington, the power of mockery and how you can just, especially gay mockery and, and the way we were doing it is we were criticizing like, you know, the alphabet gays or the, you know, the trans rights gays from the traditional gay perspective. And we were just getting really catty and really clean. Like that phrase. Yeah, the traditional games. Yeah, the original recipe games, <laughs> yeah. as as Josh used to call himself on Twitter before Twitter 
removed him as they acquiesced to a rabid hate mob of local Vermonters. Um, Thankfully, they haven't found me yet, but who knows? Um, Yeah, they, they, this hate mob up in the local Vermont community, they got, uh, they organized and they got Christopher Felker, who's the uh, Vermont chairman of the GOP party, uh, the elected, I should say, chairman of the GOP party, uh, Josh and Kevin Hurley, uh, Josh's producer, they got them all kicked off of uh, Twitter just by mass reports. They, you know, they had, they organized, they showed the accounts and then every time they popped up, they would just mass report, mass report, mass report. And they got them both, or they got all three of them uh, knocked off Twitter, which just goes to show how crappy Twitter is. Didn't Elon actually settle this though? Is he actually buying it? I don't know. I haven't. I haven't updated myself on the Elon drama. I feel like it just keeps going like. So I. I also think not to totally divert to Elon, but I think he's playing 4D chess here. I think he yeah. always wanted Twitter, and the the whole oh I don't really want it now thing was just like his way of sort of making sure the deal went through. But hmm. that's a little aside. Yeah, let's not get too much into that. Um, I don't know, you want to wrap it up here? We've been going like an hour and a half. Yeah, sure. George, I don't do you have any, too much of any final day. thoughts? Anything you want to blast out there that you haven't gotten to? You want to ask us any questions? Like, oh, I don't know. You guys have been so generous with your time. Um, I was really, my biggest concern right now is finding time to do all these silly little things that uh, we're passionate about. We're all in the same boat, really. We talked about this last time. Um, so I, I don't really have anything special aside from if you guys could all the listeners keep your eyes out um my new family shop is like my next big project that um i really want to branch out into wholesome stuff and my family's really passionate about it so are are you going to have a physical location or is this going to be an online store it's going to be etsy again but it's a completely i'm just a worker in this shop i'm not the actual person running it okay um so we'll we'll have more details soon but i'll have my little mouse book and the things that we're making are really sweet. And I hope that it's something that can even survive. Even if I get canceled and all that stupid crap, I hope it outlives me and really becomes uh, something that, that like even normies and mainstream people who would hate me normally would see this stuff and say, this is really good and wholesome and we're gonna get it for our kids. So I, I want my name to actually not be too associated with it, even though I'll be promoting it. That's my okay. You, you are you are uncancelable. Yeah, and when that link when you have that link come through, let me know and I will put it. I'll update the description with that link. Yeah, we'll blast it. It's up, but we're we're still getting it together. I wanna we wanna announce everything at the same time, so we'll it'll be in the next few months. Okay. Yeah, and I'll I can I can easily go back and edit the description. So anytime you get it, just let me know. I appreciate that. Awesome, guys. Be sure to follow George on Twitter. G Prime eighty five across your Twitter, Instagram. Instagram. Yep. You can see all of his updates. This is mostly I was pulling his stuff off of uh, IG and Twitter. But yep, go support his work. Go buy some comics. Go buy some merch. Support independent artists. You know, I think that is really how we're going to win this culture war. I think it's probably the most effective way, perhaps, you know, more than the ballot boxes. Although I don't want to, you know, shit on that process either, because all that stuff is also. Yeah, make sure you go out, vote, vote Republican or independent or wherever you want. Just don't yeah. vote. Democrat. Just be an independent thinker. <laughs> don't don't be swayed too much by all this propaganda out there and, you know, think critically. And check out George's Etsy shop. Make sure you go through, swing through. Definitely pick out, you know, pick up Mary Sue. You got to want issues one and two because the story continues immediately, and you really want to. You're gonna, you're gonna want that second issue on hand. So make sure you get first one and two at the same time. If you like it, get the rest of them. 
I'm having an amazing time with the story. I'm gonna, you know, I just I love the art. Um, I like that you ship them in the little uh, plastic containers so I can keep them nice. He forgot to sign one though. You got uh, you were supposed to bitch at him. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm gonna have to make sure you, when, when I see you next. <laughs> I have to have you sign them all. No, they were all signed. There was one of them, there's, though. There's one that wasn't. That wasn't. <laughs> I was like, Brand, you better complain to him and be like, George, what the fuck? My bad. <laughs> Bro. All right. Well, uh, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, yeah. give us money. There's donation links in the description. We love you. We'll be back again soon. Okay. We're going to end the recording. Bye-bye. Later.